Now, there's another item I, I think I probably should take the time to uh, express some thoughts on, and that is in terms of whether we should have a meal before the Passover service itself. Um, that question has come up and it's been bandied around a bit, and uh, I, I would like to clear the air a bit on that. <clears throat> Let's go back to 1 Corinthians 11. There's where the question stemmed from in Paul's description of the Passover evening. Now, they were having a problem. I suppose I could make a sermon out of this, but I'll try to make a 10-minute announcement instead. <clears throat> He's dealing with some problems in the Corinthian church, uh, the first of which in this chapter was uh, women having longer hair so that they had a covering, which is what God requires. There are those who think it's talking about hats, but if you look at the context clearly, it says her hair is given for a covering in verse 15, and that's what it's discussing. If a man has long hair, it's a shame to him, but if a woman have long hair, that is her glory, and that is the covering that God desires her to have. <clears throat> the next issue he discusses is one that was causing some division. Now, remember in the Old Testament, they only had the Passover service with a four-legged lamb. And then when Christ came, uh, on that first Passover that he had with the disciples, or the last Passover, I guess you'd have to say, they had both the meal, which was traditional from the Old Testament, and they had the change of symbols to the bread and the wine, representing his body as the lamb. Now, Paul makes it very clear, if he's the writer of Hebrews, that all those things in the Old Testament were a shadow of things to come that they were pointing to something real in the future, that they were only symbols. And I think it's very clear from many scriptures that Jesus Christ is the reality that those Old Testament symbols pictured. Now, once you have the reality there, why would you want a shadow? Let's say you have a wife and you'd like to give her a hug, but you don't see her. She's standing behind something and her shadow is projected out there. Now, you can go up and give that shadow a great big hug if you want to, but it doesn't really amount to a whole lot, does it? Now, if she steps out from behind the building and you have the real thing there, now there's something to hug. Now, if we have these Old Testament sacrifices, and we have the four-legged lamb, and it is just a bleating lamb or goat, that's not a whole lot to embrace. I mean, it was there temporarily until the reality should come. And once the reality is here, why would you want the shadow anymore? Now, we're, we're talking here, before we get into this, about the symbolism. I frankly think it is somewhat of a slap in the face to have a, of Christ's face, to have a Passover meal when you have the reality of Christ with the important symbols that came with it. Now, let's notice what Paul said. He talks about divisions in verse 18. Verse 19, for there must be also heresies among you, that they which are approved may be made manifest among you. When the heresies are there, eventually it shows what's right and what's wrong. When you come together, therefore, into one place, this is not to eat the Lord's Supper. Now, they were not to eat the Lord's Supper or 
the Passover meal, I think is what he's saying there, and the context will bear that out. That isn't why they were there. For in eating, everyone takes before other his own supper, and one is hungry, and another is drunk. So they were coming in. They had cliques and divisions among them. Some had plenty. Some didn't have much. And they weren't sharing one with another. Uh, they were getting together with their own crowd and enjoying what they brought. One is hungry, another is drunk. Drunkenness is completely out of the question, and leaving some hungry and others not is out of the question. But he said, you didn't come here to eat that meal. What? Have you not houses to eat and to drink in? You didn't come here to eat and to drink. Don't you have houses to do that? What he's leading up to is, you're not here to eat. Now, somehow this got turned around so that people thought, well, they were there to eat, they just weren't eating properly. But he makes a plain statement. You're not here to eat and to drink. Don't you have houses? Eat and drink at home. Or despise you the church of God and shame them that have not. What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you in this? I praise you not. What they were doing was totally out of line. For I have received... Now he's going to explain what... Whatever he's saying in those verses, he's going to explain what should be, okay? He says, now I'm going to tell you something I received directly from Jesus Christ. But what he's going to say here is to be compared with what they were doing, whatever it was. Now I admit that uh, you get different translations and, and you can make this sound a little muddy in verses 20 and 21 and so on. But Taken straightforward, I, I don't see that. <clears throat> anyway, here's what Paul says that night is about. He says, this is what you're doing. Here's what it's about. I have received of the Lord that which also I deliver to you, that the Lord Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. This do in remembrance of me. Now, he's going to relate to them what was done that night he was betrayed, beginning of the 14th. And what does he immediately begin to explain? The first thing you should do is come together and have a four-legged lamb for dinner. Doesn't mention it at all, does he? Not part of the instruction that he got from Christ about what that night was for. He immediately cut away from that and having a meal and began to discuss the bread and the wine that represent Christ's body and blood. That was the subject for that night. That's what was important, and that's what was to be done in remembrance of him. See, that four-legged Passover lamb had been a projection forward to him. But once he came, that was no longer important. He did it one last time in under the terms of the Old Covenant, he offered them a new covenant and a new way of doing it, saying that now we were to remember him, not a Passover lamb, or not the Exodus for that matter, but him. <clears throat> now that, see, the Exodus itself from Egypt was only a type and a shadow of what was to come. It was a great deliverance, wasn't it? Parting the Red Sea, ten plagues on Egypt, and so on. 
the killing of the entire Egyptian army and Pharaoh, saving their physical hides, was only something to look forward to and be a type of what would come that would deliver our spiritual lives. The salvation from Egypt was merely physical. But what Christ brought was eternal salvation, not just saving from Pharaoh. So it became far more important than what had gone before. We don't emphasize now the exodus from Egypt, which only represented coming out of sin or putting leavening out of our lives. Now we worship he who delivered us eternally, or is delivering us eternally, and who is washing away our sin forever. Which is most important? See, all those events back then only looked forward to something now. The Jews still looked to Moses and the Passover. We look to Jesus Christ who became the Lamb of God and the salvation that he brought. That's why Paul didn't, he just told them, don't eat and drink here. Stay home and eat and drink. Come here and take the bread and the wine. This do in remembrance of Christ. After the same manner also he took the cup, verse 25, when he had supped, saying, This cup is the New Testament in my blood. This do you as oft as you drink it in remembrance of me. So he had finished the meal. And then he started something new. He says, by, by example, he's showing, this is what we did before. We just finished that. Now I'm going to show you something else. This do in remembrance of me. For as oft as you drink, eat this bread and drink this cup, you do show the Lord's death till he come. That was something that was to be done from that point forward. And Paul was still doing it, was instructing these people to do it that way. But that was what was important. And we show his death and memorial every year until he comes. That is a memorial that night in memory of him, in memory of what he did. I read a paper recently that said the, the memorial was the next day. No, the whole day is a memorial. But this says right here that the memorial is of his death till he come. Wherefore, whosoever shall eat this bread and drink this cup of the Lord unworthily shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. I'm not going into a great explanation of all this, but what he is explaining that was to be done that night was a life and death matter. That bread and that wine representing his body is life and death. Now the Passover lamb was not life and death to all Israel. Spreading that blood of that lamb on the doorposts preserved life that night. And we did it as a memorial, and they did it as a memorial, from that then forward as a type or a shadow of what was to come. Now, once that has come, we no longer need to do that. This bread and wine that, was that Christ gave them as a symbol of his body became life and death for every one of us. If we don't take it with the right attitude, 
the right way and in all seriousness and conviction, then it becomes death to us. Now, if something is a life and death matter, that is what we need to concentrate on. Now, it doesn't say because you find yourself unworthy and not capable of taking it because you are a sinner. He doesn't say, don't therefore take it. I mean, if we recognize we're sinners, we need it. That's who he's saving is sinners. So backing off and saying, well, I just won't take it then is not the right approach or attitude to have. Verse 28, he explains, But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. We need to examine ourselves before Passover, find that we are sinners, find that we do have many, many faults, and recognize the seriousness of coming before him and what he did for us and how he was broken and beaten and his blood was drained out so that we might be forgiven of our weaknesses and our sins. For he that eats and drinks unworthily eats and drinks damnation to himself. Eternal damnation. That's pretty serious. The four-legged lamb never represented that, did it? No. But Christ's body and blood represents eternal judgment. Eternity was never offered to those people. It is offered to us. So the symbols are upgraded to not a mere lamb who could not save us, but to Jesus Christ the lamb who can. So because they've not divided Christ's body into two parts or discerned it properly, many are weak and sickly among you, and many sleep. We must do this. It is a key to healing as well. And maybe it's one of the keys we've been missing. I hope that if we do this right soon, we'll begin to see more healings than we have. But the healing is not because God's arm is shortened that he cannot heal. The lack of healing is our fault and our problem. It's easy to blame God for that, but we're the ones who have a problem obeying God. He's not anyone who has a problem healing. That's easy for him to do. It's hard for us to get in an attitude and a position of obedience so that he is willing to do it. That's what we have to get straightened out. For if we would judge ourselves, we should not be judged. Our judgment isn't on us, it's on him. But when we are judged, we are chastened of the Lord, that we should not be condemned with the world. That's why he's paddling the church now, is so we will not be condemned with the world. Now, it is not pleasant, is it, what we are going through? But it is a necessity so that we will not be condemned with the world. So this pressure, this difficulty, this time of repentance is an absolute necessity. If we don't go through it, we'll be condemned with the world. <clears throat> then he concludes this, and I think drives the last nail in in terms of whether or not there should be a meal. Wherefore, my brethren, when you come together to eat, carry one for another, that is to eat the bread and the wine, Wait for one another. Do it together, in other words. Don't, some of you come in and say, well, there's these, these five families, we're all friends, so we're going to have it here, the bread and the wine, and those poor people over there, you know, uh, they're on their own. So don't do it that way. Do it all together. Didn't Christ do it together with all the disciples? 
So wait for one another to eat and drink that. And if any man hunger, let him eat at home. In other words, there will not be a meal provided at the Passover. If you're hungry, eat at home. Don't come here to eat. A meal will not be provided. If any man hunger, let him eat at home, that you come not together to condemnation. The rest will I set in order when I come. So I think that should be very clear uh, that a Passover four-legged lamb or a meal is not to be eaten, that the important symbols are his body and his blood, the bread and the wine. And that is to be done. And it is a matter of eternal life or eternal damnation, whether or not that is done and done in the right manner. Let's go, and we're going to finish Peter, First Peter today. We are. Uh, we've only got three chapters to go, and I'm, I'm going to get through all of it, God willing, and I live that long. Now, we've seen that this is a book with great hope in it, and he tells us that we're to be like Christ, and if we do suffer, the end of chapter 2, we're to suffer just as he suffered, without opening our mouths, without justifying ourselves, without trying to make excuses, uh, if we deserve, if, if we're buffeted for something we did, there's no reward in that. So if you are guilty, why get excited? And if you're not guilty, the only reward that comes from that is in taking it patiently. Most of us want to justify, we want to make excuses, we want to find some way to come out justified and righteous, no matter what it is that we've done. So we often react very uh, emotionally, if someone tries to point out anything, we might have done wrong. <clears throat> we, we don't like that. We don't like to be told we're wrong. We don't like to be told to do anything. It is our carnal human nature. That is not a fruit of God's Spirit. Uh, being vengeful, being um, self-justifying, or making excuses. That's just not the way Christ did it. So we're not to do that either. And he concludes that chapter by saying, We are a sheep going astray, but are now returned to the shepherd and bishop of our souls. Likewise, in chapter 3, you wives be in subjection to your own husbands, that if any obey not the word, they also may be without the word, be won by the conduct or the behavior of the wives. Now he's going to give some uh, personal instruction here, family relations, relations between husband and wife. And he starts out addressing the wives. He will address the husbands. Uh, we need to understand, really, that there's a difference in the New Testament and how God looks at marriage and how he looks at husband and wife than what he did in the Old Testament. I did a paper on divorce and remarriage sometime, some years ago, and then I guess we had four, five, six sermons or something on that paper <coughs> more recently. <coughs> but in there... I showed that because of Eve's participation with Satan, uh, God pronounced a curse upon her and upon women that would come. That is where child uh, pain and childbirth began, and that is where it said her husband would rule over her. And from that time forward until the New Testament, women essentially were chattel. Uh, 
bought, sold, traded, basically. Uh, polygamy was allowed. All kinds of things that God did not originally intend were tolerated by God. He even told David, why did you take another man's wife? If you wanted more wives, I'd have given you more. Women were treated fairly cheaply. And their thoughts, their feelings, their emotions were not that deeply considered. And it was a result of that sin. But in the New Testament, that changes. And we're going to see that in here. Women are no longer property. And the law of the husband that is mentioned in the Old Testament no longer exists. It has been changed. That is no longer valid. Now let's go on and we'll see that in the context here. Uh, Likewise, you wives, be in subjection to your own husband. And he's talking about here, if you are converted and in the church and your husband is not, he might be won over by your good conduct. If you treat him the way that God intended a woman to respond to her husband, the right attitudes, he might be won over. So it could be a good thing, and you would not be, be any further than unequally yoked. I may need to go back to 1 Corinthians 7 and go through that a little bit in terms of what the relationship between man and woman is, and is it one-sided anymore, <clears throat> where the man takes charge and the woman is just chattel or cattle or however you want to say it. Uh, that often is the case. I know... Years ago, uh, we began to realize that American society and culture was backward, that women and children were actually ruling the families, and we told men that they had been put as the head of the house. The trouble is, they had no training in being a head. They had no training in leadership. So they said, all right, I'm the head, and they picked up the nearest two before and said, I'm in charge. And that created a lot of grief among people in the church because men were doing or being told to do a job that they had not been trained for or equipped to do, and therefore they did it in the wrong fashion. And it created all kinds of problems. We're talking about the women here, though. Now, while they behold, that is your husbands, while they behold your proper conduct coupled with fear, fear of God, fear of man in a right way, but primarily fear of God, where you... Tremble at his word and at his commands and at the things that he says. These words by Peter are words of God, written down, canonized, and made a part of Scripture by God. So what is said here is directly from God through Peter. Whose adorning, let it not be that outward adorning of plaiting the hair and of wearing of gold or of putting on of apparel. In other words, the emphasis is not to be physical looks, or dressing up to look fancy. Now, there are some who have taken this verse, among others that are similar to it, and said, well, you should not uh, fix your hair, and you should not wear jewelry. Jewelry is condemned right here by this scripture. Well, I'm here to tell you, if you take that view, and you say that you should not fix your hair, and you should not wear gold or jewelry, you should also go naked. If you're going to take that view, you've got to take the whole thing. Because putting on of apparel is a part of it. Is there anybody here who believes we shouldn't wear jewelry or fix our hair? Would you please stand and strip? <laughs> Point made? 
It's okay to wear clothes, thankfully. It's okay to wear gold, and it's okay to fix your hair. But those things should not be the main emphasis. See, we have a culture today that that's all it's about, is looks. And we spend so much time trying to look good that we don't have any time left to do good. The emphasis is what is wrong. It isn't the jewelry, it isn't the clothes, it isn't combing or fixing your hair that is wrong. It's the inordinate uh, overkill that is the problem. We have a society that is based upon how you look, not how you are. And he is emphasizing here that the conduct ought to be good and that the conduct should be our first concern, our attitude should be our first concern, not how we look. And he goes on to explain that. But let it be the hidden man of the heart, and that which is not corruptible, even the ornament of a meek and quiet spirit, which is in the sight of God of great price. To God, what is really important is a meek and humble attitude and our godly conduct. That's what's really important, not our looks. Isaiah 3 goes into that and explains in detail how they were mincing about and fixing themselves up, and the emphasis was on physical looks. That's a prophecy for today of, of, of the Israelitish people. And lo and behold, look at our society. That is what is important. How do I look? And the men are the same way. Scared to death they're going to go bald, so they're getting all these little old implants and various things so they can grow hair. Yeah, give us a break. Who cares? Old men get bald. It's all right. We also get wrinkled. You know? And they're trying to do all they can to straighten all that out. That's the primary reason I don't lose weight. Because if I do, I'm afraid it'll all sag and wrinkle. Yeah, right. No, the main reason I don't is because I like to eat too much. I don't like to exercise enough. Anyway, where were we? The attitude is what God is concerned about. He wants us to be meek and of a loving spirit, not argumentative, not uh, self-justifying, not defensive, but humble and meek, willing to be taught. And that is one of the hardest things for human beings to do, is to be willing to be taught, to be humble and to be meek. And it's one of the huge problems in the church today is unwillingness to be taught. I will present my idea, I will lean to my own understanding, I will not be taught by anyone else. Now, a lot of the ministry uh, is getting what it deserves because they are hirelings who are not teaching the truth, and the disrespect and the despite that is there is well-deserved. But those in the ministry, including me, need to be repenting of that and also have a meek and quiet spirit and be willing to be taught as well. I don't know it all, and no minister does. And if some, someone comes up with something that is biblical, then we need to be willing to be taught. Now, it's got to be biblical is the key. The information on the Passover itself, I believe, can be proved, and we're going to do it that way. And I had to change. On the other hand, the having the meal with it, I think, is not based 
on truth and what the Scripture actually says, and therefore we're not going to do it unless somebody can show me uh, very clearly that it should be done because what we just read in 1 Corinthians 11 looks to me pretty clear that it should not be done. God's Word is the final authority, not our traditions, the Jews' traditions, or anybody else's idea or tradition. What does the Scripture actually say? Well, actually it says here that attitude is what is important, not the physical looks. But what God prizes is a meek and quiet spirit. For after this manner, verse 5, in the old time, the holy women also who trusted in God adorned themselves being in subjection to their own husbands. They adorned themselves with meekness, with a quiet spirit, with willingness, with service, willing to be a servant to their husbands. Even as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, she was willing to look to him as if she would be looking to God. That's hard for American women to accept, but that is the attitude that God says should be. We need to work on that one. Whose daughters you are, wouldn't it be nice to be the daughter of Sarah? She's going to be in the kingdom of God. She's listed in Hebrews 11 as one of the faithful. If you want to be something important, uh, do what Peter's telling us here. You can be listed in the 144,000 as one of the faithful to God that will in the future be listed as those to whom the whole world can look. Now right now, or when Paul wrote Hebrews, if he indeed was the editor or the writer, and I believe he was, when he wrote that, he could cast back in his memory, or not in his memory, but in, the, in history, and see the women who did well. And he used Sarah and Rebecca, I think it was. He used uh, Rahab, the harlot, who had a spirit of service and a right attitude, even though her profession wasn't so hot. But she was willing to help. And she's going to be in the kingdom of God as a result of the attitude she showed. Now, maybe she carried on with uh, proper conduct after that because her house and she were saved. And maybe she became a part of Israel and became obedient as other patriarchs and matriarchs did. And she's listed in Hebrews 11 as one of those that will be in the kingdom of God. So the past really didn't matter. It's where she went from there that mattered. So being a daughter of Sarah and Rebekah and Rahab would be a wonderful thing for you to be able to be compared to. One who turned your life around, turned your attitude around, and became what you ought to be before God. And even as Paul could only list those in the past, when it comes to the millennium, there's going to be an awful lot of women added to that. Some of them are mentioned in the New Testament of, as good examples of proper Christianity. And you gals will also be listed there for the rest of the world as examples. You'll be living there as kings and priests if you have this attitude that he's talking about. And you will be used as an example to the rest of the millions and billions of women who populate the earth as the faithful the right kind of woman. It'd be kind of nice to be in that company, wouldn't it? To be listed in the same breath as Sarah and Rebecca. 
Rahab too, once she repented. So, you're Sarah's daughter, as long as you do well and understand this concept and put it into your life. The King James doesn't mean much there, not being not afraid with any amazement. It doesn't, doesn't make much sense, but poor translation. As I put it, if you're not blown away by this idea, by this thought, and American women sometimes are. All right, then it turns and says, likewise, you husbands. So that's talking to us, men, not the wives anymore. You gals can relax now and quit screeching your toes up in your shoes. I'm going to talk to the men a while. Likewise, you husbands, dwell with them according to knowledge. What knowledge? This knowledge, God's word, God's way, according to the knowledge of salvation, according to the knowledge of how to conduct a family, how to conduct a marriage. Dwell with them according to knowledge. That uh, means that you have to stack the two before in the corner and forget it, right? According to knowledge, not by brute force. That isn't the way to do it. Giving honor to the wife as unto the weaker vessel. Her position is weaker in that sense in the family. If God put man in charge as the head of the family, which is very clear that he did, that puts a woman in a very, very vulnerable position. She is told to honor her husband. She's told to obey her husband. Well, it's our responsibility to be sure that we do not lay anything on her to obey than what ought to be laid upon her to obey. Not our every whim is a macho redneck. That's not what it's talking about. We are to give godly leadership. We are not to put anything on them that the Father or His Son, Jesus Christ, would put on them or on us. Dwell with them according to knowledge and give honor. Don't put her down. Don't dishonor her. Don't treat her as chattel or cattle anymore. Treat her with honor, with respect. God has put her in a vulnerable position to aid and assist and help you, and you need to recognize that and recognize what a hard job that is. Because every woman can say, yeah, you're, I'm, supposed to worship, I'm supposed to call you Lord or show respect to you, but you treat me like dirt. That's not right. God did not give man that kind of power over the woman. did in the Old Testament to some degree because of the curse that was pronounced when they were kicked out of Eden. But that changes in the New Testament. It's not there anymore. Give honor to her as the weaker vessel and as being heirs together of the grace of life that your prayers be not hindered. God does not consider you male in charge and she a lesser being than you. We are heirs together in a marriage. Joint heirs, co-heirs. We're put in that same position as joint heirs or co-heirs with Christ of salvation. And God intends the marriage to be a coexistence 
in closeness and in harmony where love and respect are shown both directions and heirs together, not one above the other. That your prayers be not hindered. If a wrong position is taken and the man puts himself above the woman in a wrong way, then the relationship with God is hindered. It hinders her prayers because it makes it very difficult for her to look to God as a loving father when she has a husband that does not treat her with love and kindness and respect and honor. It's hard to understand how the relationship would be with God when you have a man who browbeats you. It doesn't work that way. It's not supposed to be that way. Now I'm going to turn back to 1 Corinthians 7. I did promise to finish, didn't I? And let's see how this is written. Now this is the chapter where Paul changed and God honored that and put it in Scripture, so it is now accepted of God, even though Paul said at the time it was a judgment he was ma making based on the New Covenant and based on the circumstance. It's a place where it says you can leave a husband or a wife if they do not live together with you in peace. 1 Corinthians 7, Now concerning the things whereof you wrote to me, they wrote to him, saying it is good for a man not to touch a woman. He said, nevertheless, to avoid fornication, in spite of the thing that you've brought up, let every man have his own wife, and let every woman have her own husband. Let the husband render to the wife due benevolence, and likewise also the wife unto the husband. This is talking about the sexual relationship, even though the King James people don't like to admit that. So they put it in terms of due benevolence. The wife has not power of her own body, but the husband. And likewise also the husband has not power of his own body, but the wife. Defraud you not one the other, except it be with consent for a time that you may give yourselves to fasting and prayer. In other words, the only excuse for not rendering due benevolence uh, is fasting and prayer. Now, I understand health. I understand uh, tiredness, all those things. But, but the marriage relationship cannot be a weapon. It cannot be used to try to control the other person. I'll cut you off. That is not fair. And that is ungodly. It is not a weapon. It is something God designed, a beautiful thing, between husband and wife that is supposed to draw you together. Using it as a weapon does not draw you together. It pulls you apart. And it should not be used in any way to try to get your way. The marriage relationship should be something that is given to each other, not something done selfishly just because someone has a need, but it should be done in loving concern. It should be something that is shared together and is beautiful together. Anytime it is used as a weapon or a way to get your own way or to be selfish or to be controlling or manipulative, you are doing it wrongly. And he says, do not defraud one another except it be with consent for a time. And that for fasting and prayer. That is 
an excuse. So if you use it to get out of it, you had better be fasting and praying. Okay? That's what he says. And come together again that Satan tempt you not for your incontinency or thoughts beginning to stray because you're not being fulfilled with your mate. But I speak this by permission and not of commandment. But once it's put in the Bible, it becomes commandment, doesn't it? Not just Paul's opinion. For I would that all men were even as I myself. He wasn't married then, and he was able to contain, able to control himself. But every man has his proper gift of God, one after this manner and another after that. I say, therefore, to the unmarried and widows, it is good for them if they abide even as I. Now, and later in this chapter, and I don't have time to go there and explain the whole thing, uh, he was writing this because of the present distress. He thought the end of the age was coming almost immediately. And he even counseled young people not to get married because they would have trouble in the flesh uh, with the end time coming, and it would be so much easier to devote time, energy, and attention to your new mate than it would be to God. So there is a time, and it's in Scripture, that we're getting too close to the end to consider marriage, that we ought to devote ourselves to God. Now, I'm not going to stand here and tell you which day and hour that is. That's not my job. My job is to read the Scripture to you and let you know but what we really need to be doing is getting close to God. And God is blowing the church apart because we were not close to God. And only those who do make the effort to get close to God are going to be saved out of this mess that is not going to get better, but is going to get worse. Now, we're getting to the point that I want to make in terms of the marriage relationship down here in verse... Uh, 10. Well, he does give an, an option in verse 9. If they cannot contain themselves, let them marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion and to try to control that, because that can be very difficult at times. All right, now verse 10. To the married I command, yet not I, but the Lord. Now he's saying here his opinion was given, and God honored that opinion by putting in the Scripture. But he says, now... What I'm about to tell you now is from the Lord. Let not the wife depart from her husband. Now that is God's original intent, is that one man, one wife, stay together throughout their physical life. He modified that to some degree, and he's making a modification right here. He says, let not the wife depart from her husband, but and if she depart... Let her remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband, and let not the husband put away his wife. So the husband or the wife should not, under normal circumstances, put each other away. Now, here in the New Testament, it gives an option either way, doesn't it? Husband or wife. It's better not for either one to do that, but to stay together and to be reconciled to each other, if at all possible. Now, that is something he says God said. Now he addresses personally again, verse 12. But to the rest speak I, not the Lord. He's saying, this is not something I received directly from Christ, as he said in 1 Corinthians 11 about the Passover. This is something, this is a judgment he was making, 
based on the circumstances and based on his knowledge of the Father and the Son, and he said, I'm speaking this, this is a, an administrative judgment that I'm making. But on the other hand, God saw fit to put it in the Scripture, so therefore, since it has been canonized as Scripture, it is no longer just Paul's personal administrative decision or personal attitude. It is now Scripture. It is part of the Word of God. So it's not speak I in terms of Paul. This is the Word of God, what we read here henceforward. If any brother has a wife that believes not, and she be pleased to dwell with him, let him not put her away. And the woman which has an husband that believes not, and we remember it was talking about a woman pleasing so that she might gain her husband there in 1 Peter 3. The woman which has an husband that believes not, and if he be pleased to dwell with her, let her not leave him. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband. They are set apart based on your Christianity, whether you be a husband or a wife. It's not one way here. Else were your children unclean, but now are they holy. They are sanctified and set apart for protection and guidance of God if only one mate in a marriage is converted. And he said, if they're pleased to dwell with you, be you husband or be you wife, don't put them away. Now that is implying that if they are not pleased to dwell with you, you can be you a husband or a wife. Either way, the door swings both ways. This isn't just Western culture, this is the word of God in the New Covenant, the New Testament. Now he goes on to explain, verse 15, But if the unbelieving depart, let him depart. A brother or a sister... Either one is not bound in such cases. Under bondage means enslaved. They are free from that marriage, woman or man. But God has called us to peace. So it can be either way. If a husband or a wife is married to someone who is in the church and they are pleased to dwell with, fine. But if they are not pleased to dwell with and they show it by their actions and their attitudes... God says we're called to peace, you can depart, and you are not bound, not under bondage to that person anymore. Now what does not bound mean? If you tie my hands behind my back with a rope, I'm bound. I cannot use my hands. Now if you untie me, I am not bound anymore. I have freedom to use my hands. If you are bound in a marriage, you are bound and not free to go anywhere else. If you are unbound, then you are free to go elsewhere. Bound is bound and unbound is unbound. Now, God made an exception here because something was done that he is responsible for. That is, he only called the husband or the wife. He did not call both. So he says, if I called just the husband, and the wife is pleased to dwell with him as a Christian and allow him to do everything he needs to do, spiritually and religiously, then 
shouldn't put her away. Or vice versa, she should not put him away if she's the one who is called. But if they make your life hell on earth because of your religion and will not live in peace, but show by their attitude and actions that they are not pleased to dwell with you, you can put them away, husband or wife, and not be bound in such cases. God takes responsibility that he only called one in the family. Now, maybe by the wife's right attitude and right approach, as 1 Peter 3 says, the husband might be won over and begin to be converted because of her right attitude. But if he's not, and life becomes unbearable or unpleasant because of religion, not just for any reason, but because they are not pleased to dwell with you as you worship God, then you have an option. And it goes both ways. It's not a one-way street. It says, A brother or a sister is not under bondage in such cases, but God has called us to peace. For what know you, O wife, whether you shall save your husband? Or how know you, O man, whether you shall save your wife? The door swings both ways. Women are no longer chattel, as they were from Genesis 3 until the New Covenant. <coughs> that is all explained in the paper. If you have a question on that, it would be good to read it. But it came up right here in First Peter about the proper relationship between husband and wife. If you go to Ephesians 5, the same thing is explained. I'm not going there for sake of time, but the same thing is brought out that the husband and the wife were to give respect and love to each other. And a man was to treat a woman as his own flesh. Take care of it like you do your fingers and your toes and your nose. That's the way you're supposed to take care of your wife. <coughs> so he opens with instruction to wife and husband. <coughs> and then he turns it <laughs> to all of us. Verse 8 of, chapter, of uh, 1 Peter 3. Finally, be you all of one mind, having compassion one of another. Love as brothers. Be pitiful, or show pity, show concern for. Be courteous. <coughs> this is the attitude we should be examining in ourselves as the Passover comes, because Christ was willing to humble himself completely, give him of himself completely for us. God, the Father, so loved the world, Everyone that he gave his son for us. And he loves us here in the church, and we should love each other as he loved us. There had to be a great deal of feeling and emotion and concern there for him to go through what he went through for you and me. And he says, you are to have the same attitude one toward another. So if we're lacking in this in any way, in any way this is a good time to be thinking very, very deeply about it. We have attitudes toward some people. Not rendering evil for evil or railing for railing, but contrarywise, blessing. If somebody is, does evil against you or rails against you or talks evil of you, don't talk evil of them. Return instead, blessing. We had people who turned us in uh, to the Planning and Zoning Commission just to make trouble for us. Well, if we shouldn't make trouble for them. We should, contrary-wise, treat them very nicely, 
and become a blessing to them. That goes against our nature, doesn't it? I was even encouraged to turn in those people who turned us in by planning and zoning because they said their place is a mess. I'm not going to. We cannot return evil for evil or railing for railing. But instead, blessing. Knowing that you are thereunto called, that you should inherit a blessing. We're here to inherit a blessing. For he that will love life and see good days, let him refrain his tongue from evil and his lips that they speak no guile. We don't have time and energy, nor do we within the parameters of a quest for eternal life have room for backbiting and gossip and saying things that are hurtful about people. This is something we can all work on. Let him hate evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. Blessed are the peacemakers, not those that would drive a wedge between, that always have to be in the know and give you the straight scoop God does not honor that. He does not respect it. In fact, he hates it. It is the glory of God to conceal a matter, but it is the glory of man to reveal a matter. Are we godly or ungodly? That we need to consider very deeply. For the eyes of the eternal are over the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayers. So if we're speaking evil, we're railing against, I was recently said about somebody, they'll say anything about anybody. That is a terrible thing to have to say about someone, isn't it? But God has his eyes on the righteous. His ears are open to their prayers. Do we want God to hear our prayers and to be open to them? Yes, we do. Every one of us does. We want God to hear our prayers or we wouldn't pray. But if we're not peacemakers, and our tongue is not refrained from evil, he says he won't hear our prayers. The face of the Lord is against them that do evil. And he's, what he's talking about here is evil, showing hatred and despite rather than love. And who is he that will harm you if you be followers of that which is good? But and if you suffer for righteousness' sake, happy are you. Be not afraid of their terror, neither be troubled. You don't have to worry about it. But set aside the Lord God in your hearts and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asks you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. That doesn't mean an answer to every doctrinal question as we've used it in the past. The reason for the hope that lies in you is the resurrection. Be able to give them reason why you hope in a resurrection. How can you hope in a resurrection? You can hope in a resurrection if you're living a godly life. So the answer you give for the hope that lies within you of the resurrection is that you've quit rendering evil for evil and you are living in love and happiness and health and peacemaking with others. That's what this is talking about. That's what the context and the subject is. Not being the first and foremost with the right doctrinal explanation of every little thing. That's the way we used it. That does not fit what Peter is saying. What Peter is saying is you live your life. And that is the reason you can give for the hope that lies in you. I'm living in such a way that I have hope in the resurrection. That's the hope that lies in us. 
For it is better if the will of God be so that you suffer for well-doing than for evil-doing. If you're going to suffer, at least suffer for the right reasons. For Christ also has once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit. By which also he went and preached to the spirits in prison, uh, which sometime were disobedient, when once the long-suffering of God waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was preparing, wherein few, that is, eight souls, were saved by water. Now, did he go preach to demons? That has always been used here. I'm not so sure that is the correct explanation of that. What was preached during the time that the ark was being prepared? Now, prison means bondage here. The word is, in, for spirit is pneuma. And we may have assumed that Christ, for that 120 years the ark was preparing, was preaching to the demons. Why? Why then if any other time? What was Noah preaching? Noah was preaching righteousness while he was dabbing uh, and building that ark. Now it may be that Christ was preaching through Noah to human beings who were in bondage of sin. They were about to be put to death. They were under that, they were on death row. That's the kind of bondage they were in. And God inspired Noah and Jesus Christ spoke through him to preach repentance to those people for 120 years. A preaching that could have done some good. I hope what I'm speaking today is doing some good. Otherwise, I'm flapping my gums in futility. What good is it, tell, is it to tell you and me that we need to quit talking about each other and show love and concern and make peace instead of war if we don't change? does no good whatever. I'm just flapping my jaws and we're sitting here trying to stay awake for nothing. Now he says don't lose the value of that example of the preaching that occurred while the ark was preparing. Verse 21, only eight souls were saved. The preaching was in futility. Be it Christ to the demons or be it Christ through Noah to human beings who were in bondage of sin. Did no good. Only eight were saved. The like figure, whereunto even baptism does also now save us, not the putting away of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. See, you can have will worship and try to do good all you want, but it'll do no good unless you repent and are baptized and have the forgiveness of sin and your sins washed away symbolically in that water when you go under and are baptized. And you only have a good conscience and a hope for salvation in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that symbolism is in baptism too. You go down into the water to die for all your past way of living and thinking to go under and stay there, to be buried in that water. Now, if we held you under until the bubble stopped, that wouldn't do you much good. 
you would be dead and you wouldn't live. But you go down to have the old man die, symbolically, and you come back up out of the water, symbolizing salvation from death. And that's where Christ's resurrection comes in. You come up out of the water, and the symbolism there is of his resurrection. And that you then, thenceforward, can look forward to the resurrection just as he was resurrected. <clears throat> By the laying on of hands, then, you have the begettle of the Holy Spirit. And from the time that a child is begotten, it can grow toward being born. So there's a great deal of rich symbolism that is brought out here, having to do with Christ's death and resurrection. Is there any wonder why this was probably written right around Passover time? The resurrection of Jesus Christ who has gone into heaven and is on the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers being made subject to him. Chapter 4, and we only have two to go. Now, if I don't quit on time, remember I started late. So I have plenty of tape left, whether or not the hour of 2 o'clock comes. <coughs> For as much then as Christ has suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves likewise with the same mind. So as he suffered in the flesh and was willing to go through all he went through for us, we are to have the same mind of service and giving and help and pity and compassion and love for each other. For he that has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. We do learn from our mistakes, I hope. That he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh to the lusts of men, but to the will of God. There's a transition that should occur. We're living now in hope of eternal life. And we should be living our life in such a way that we can have a good conscience and a positive feeling that we will be in that resurrection. But we can fail. So he says... Live as if you cease from sin, and in fact do cease from sin, and don't fulfill the flesh according to the lusts of men the way you used to live. We're to have a change in attitude and approach. And he explains that, verse 3. For the time past, in our past life, when we were just carnal human beings, for the time past of our life may suffice us to have worked the will of the Gentiles when we walked in lawlessness, lusts, excess of wine, revelings, banquetings, and abominable idolatries. In other words, we just partied on, to put it in normal, I mean in modern parlance. Wherefore they think it strange that you not run not with them to the same excess of riot speaking evil of you. Our kids go to school. They deny smoking. They deny excessive drinking or drinking. They deny drugs. They deny sex and fornication. They're not like the other kids. They're going to get persecuted for it. We, living here, if we don't live like these people around us, wherever we happen to be, they're going to look down on us because we're different. We're just different. All you have to do to look different than the world is keep Saturday instead of Sunday, and immediately you're branded as strange and weird. Just that one thing. Because you don't keep Sunday and go to the temple with them when they go. And then if you don't live like they live, they think you're strange. 
Now, on the other hand, if I'm trying to live God's way, and they don't live that way, can't I think they're strange? Yeah, they are. They're strangers to God. I'm trying to be a friend of God. So, being thought weird and strange comes with the territory if you want to obey God. It's just automatic. Nothing personal. It's just automatic. But the more we try to appear unweird to the world, the more weird we're going to appear to God. That's why he tells us our fellowship is not with the world. Our friends are not supposed to be people who are not following God. We are to have our fellowship with the Father and the Son and with each other, we're told in 1 John. That's where our fellowship is to be. It's not to be with the world. Our children sometimes perhaps think it restrictive when we don't let them overnight with school friends. Well, if you do that, aren't you training them to have friends in the world while they're young? Aren't you training them to go along with kind of the way those kids are so they're not thought weird? You know, I want to be thought weird. I want my children to be thought of as weird. Why? Because if I obey God, it's automatic. Now, I don't like to be looked down upon necessarily, but I know that if I obey God, it's the way it's going to be. I remember when we lived in Wolf Creek, Montana. There were only 100 people there on a really good day, maybe 4th of July. Everybody knew everybody, and everybody knew everybody's business. There were only two bars and restaurants in town. You transacted business, you got drunk, you did everything you did in those two bars, basically. And we had a battle on our hands, a battle I sometimes lost. Because what did they want to do? Well, let's go down to the Oasis, or let's go down to... Uh, Boy, mine's going. I can't even remember the bar. Uh, Charlie's place. Let's go get drunk. All right. You know, I don't want to be thought weird. Let's go get drunk. They'd have thought it strange if I said, no, it's Friday night, Sabbath. I'm not going to go get drunk. And I did say that. Come Saturday night, though, well, your Sabbath's over. Let's go get drunk. If I never go get drunk with them, I was thought weird. Well, should have just been weird. Wasn't always, but sometimes I was. And I repented of when I wasn't. But they wanted you to be good old boys, and they wanted you to do the things that they do. But they'll think you're strange and weird if you don't go to the same excess of riot that they go and speak evil of you. There were some of them that wanted us to go down to Jackpot, Nevada every weekend and gamble with them because, man, they were winning. They had a beautiful ranch, wonderful, beautiful, several thousand acres that had been in the family for several generations. They'd come back every Monday talking about how much they'd won down there in Jackpot. And now their ranch is gone. That's how much they won. Free and clear. Owned it for generations. Completely gone. Beautiful ranch. I'm glad I didn't go to the same excess of riot in that department with them. They thought we were weird because we couldn't go down there and win with them. Sure glad we didn't. And they spoke evil of us. 
Who shall give account to him that is ready to judge the quick and the dead? Our judgment is now. This is a day of salvation. Theirs isn't now. So why should we do what they do and be like they are so that they think nicely of us now? I want them to worship us in the world tomorrow. For for this cause was the gospel preached also to them that are dead, that they might be judged according to men in the flesh, but live according to God in the Spirit. Didn't the message go out from Herbert Armstrong to the world that they might have an opportunity? Well, most people laughed at it. Now they're going to go into the Great Tribulation. But the end of all things is at hand. We're in, at the end of the age. Be you therefore sober and watch prayerfully. That's the attitude we should be in. Not having games, not having fun, not playing. I mean, we can have fun among ourselves and we can have good times and we can laugh. I don't mean to say that that's wrong. But our overall approach to life should be very sober and very serious. And it should be filled with prayer. Because the end of all things is far closer now than when Peter wrote this. And he didn't write it as much for him as he wrote it for us, even though he didn't know it at the time. And above all things, now if you, above all things, you may have important issues, you may have important agendas that you are excited about. That's well and good in context and as long as they are not overdone. But Peter says, above all things, now if you want to consider what is the most important thing, Peter is going to tell us, above all things, no matter what else might come along or interest you or whatever it could be, above all things, have fervent love among yourselves. For love shall cover the multitude of sins. A lot of sin, a lot of hurt, a lot of wrongdoing can be covered by love. Some things people say can be very hurtful. Well, turn it around and become helpful. And it will cover a multitude of sins. Use hospitality one to another without grudging. Genuinely serve and help and invite and be hospitable and friendly and so on with each other. As every man has received the gift, even so serve or minister the same one to another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Hasn't God, what has God done for me? He's forgiven every sin I ever committed. He's washed me white. He's cleared my conscience of my past, whatever it might have been. And yours. He's given me a, an opportunity to live forever and ever in an absolutely peaceful, secure, wealthy, wonderful environment. Can we allow our brothers and sisters to live in peace? Can we encourage them and strengthen them and have a godly community? That's what we're here to do. We're to live like God would live and treat each other as we would want to be treated. It hurts when I hear gossip about me. Doesn't it hurt when you hear gossip about you? Does it hurt when you hear me gossip about you? It hurts when you gossip about me. Why don't we give each other a break? Why don't we give each other what each other deserves and needs and wants? Some peace we got complaints against each other, let's talk to each other. 
not to somebody else. That's what this is all about. I heard a couple of really interesting rumors about myself a couple of weeks ago. See, one is when I had gone to North Dakota to, to bring a load of things down here, uh, the rumor came from somewhere that I had moved to Pennsylvania because I couldn't take it here anymore. Well, I'm not in Pennsylvania, and I can barely take it here now. I can barely take life. <clears throat> but I'm not leaving, and I'm certainly not going to Pennsylvania. That would be one of the last places I would go if I was fed up and couldn't stand it here. Well, whoever started that one didn't know me very well. Let's see, what was the other one? The other one was, oh my, I had it. Oh, I know what it was. The other rumor that start, got started was that, that I had started one of these communities before and it had failed. When was that? I asked Marla if I'd lost it entirely. When did I do this? Where did it happen? I, I, I don't remember it at all. I've never done anything of this kind in the past. And if it failed, why would you be doing it again? Where do these things come from? Those two were untrue. We won't talk about others. Let's go on. Be good stewards of the manifold grace of God that he's given us. Look at what he's done for us, what, what he's doing for us, and what we're going to symbolize this weekend in terms of the Passover and what has been done for us. If any man speak, let him speak as the words of God. If any man serve, let him do it as of the ability which God gives, that God in all things may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom be praise and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Or so be it. And then he goes on to say, Beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you. Are we having troubles, trials, difficulties? Is the whole church going through a whole series of this? Decades of it now. You bet we are. Don't think it's strange, he says, and don't deny it when it happens. I can't imagine having a fiery trial and gunfire, for instance, coming in an organization of God and everyone not saying, maybe we should repent and be humble and meek and seek God. Instead saying, well, Satan's just getting in our way. Please. Don't think it's strange when these fiery trials come on us, as though some strange thing happened to you. But rejoice. We should be rejoicing in all this trouble that has come on the church. Know that? Why? Because it will bring the peaceable fruits of righteousness if we are properly exercised thereby. If we straighten the crooked leg and the foot, as Hebrews 12 says, and live righteously. God has done this for our good, even though it hurts. Rejoice inasmuch as you are partakers of Christ's sufferings. He had to go through suffering and trials, troubles and torments on this earth for 33 and a half years. You think the kids didn't think Christ was strange when he wouldn't do the same things they wanted to do? You don't think they thought he was strange as an adult, that bastard from Nazareth? But when his glory shall be revealed you may be glad also with exceeding joy. He is going to come. 
there is going to be a resurrection. You will either be in it or you will not. So Peter is encouraging us to do what's right so that we can be a part of it and have exceeding joy. If I'm alive and remaining and some of you start coming up off the earth to meet Christ in the clouds and I can't get off the ground, I will not have exceeding joy. I'm sure deep bitterness would set in immediately because I want to rise from the earth when Christ returns. If you be reproached for the name of Christ, happy are you. If they want to call us a weird Sabbath-keeping tin church of God, tin building church of God, or tin can church of God, fine. That doesn't bother me in the least. For reproached for doing what's right, for keeping the Sabbath, what's wrong with that? Maybe they despise us. So what? If it makes God happy, he's the one that can resurrect. Neighbors can't. Relatives can't. Friends in the world can't. God can't. So happy are you if you be reproached in the name of Christ. For the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. On their part he is evil spoken of, but on your part he is glorified. Someday they should see the glory of God in us. But let none of you suffer as a murderer, or as a thief, or as an evildoer, or as a busybody in other men's matters. Because that's character assassination. It's the same thing as murder. Yet if any man suffers a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God on this behalf. For the time is come, the judgment must begin at the house of God. We are the temple, the house of God. This is where judgment begins. There is an order of resurrections. Others will have their opportunity later. Ours is now. This is a day of salvation. And if it first begin at us, what shall the end be of them that obey not the gospel of God? And if the righteous scarcely be saved, where shall the ungodly and the sinner appear? Ever feel like you're just barely hanging on by your fingernails? The righteous are scarcely saved. As much as we might obey, and as much as we might overcome, and as much as we might make progress toward being like God, we're still going to fall very far short because we are human beings who are anchored with our nature, and our nature is hard to overcome. But he says if you do overcome, you will be in his kingdom. Wherefore, let them that suffer according to the will of God commit the keeping of their souls to him and well-doing as unto a faithful creator. He created us. He made us. He put us here. He's given us an opportunity of salvation. He's not trying to get rid of us. He wants us. It would be his good pleasure to give us the kingdom. It says right here in this book, the Bible. He really wants to give us salvation. That is his desire. It's his purpose and his plan. The elders which are among you I exhort, who am also an elder, and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, and also a partaker of the glory that shall be revealed. Feed the flock of God which is among you, taking the oversight thereof, and it is an oversight, it is a job that is given to do, whether we like it or not, our carnal nature doesn't like some other human being guiding or leading or teaching us. But if we don't like it, we're not humble. We're not meek. We're not teachable. We're still carnal, self-righteous, and full of human nature. But he tells them not that they do have the oversight, not to do it because you have to, but willingly. 
not for filthy lucre or for money, but of a ready mind, a desire to serve, a desire to give, a desire to help. That should be the motivation. Neither is being lords over God's heritage, and there was pressure, there was plenty of that done. And that needs to be repented of by all of us. But being examples to the flock, not lording it over them and smashing them down, but being examples. That's the hard part. Hard part for anybody. And when the chief shepherd shall appear, you shall receive a crown of glory that fades not away. If you have the right attitude, serve the people in the right way, help them, lead them, guide them toward God's kingdom, tell them where they're wrong, that's part of it. Cry aloud, spare not, tell them their sins. But at the same time, have compassion and mercy and pity and concern. And if you do that, you will receive a crown of glory. Likewise, you younger, submit yourselves to the elder. Yes, all of you be subject one to another and be clothed with humility. For God resists the proud and gives grace to the humble. If we get our human nature under control, crucify the old self, I die daily, Paul said, and have the attitude that Christ had. See, that is the shining example of attitude that we are to have is how he reacted when he was falsely accused before his death. <coughs> Isaiah 53 goes into it. He answered not a word. He was led as a slam to the slaughter. Didn't justify himself, didn't defend himself, didn't try to put himself or lift himself above others, but humbled himself very meekly. That is the attitude we are looking for and need. And if we're not that way, he will resist us. If we're proud, if we're vain, if we're self-righteous, if we're judgmental, if we look down on others and try to lift ourselves up, we are Laodicean. And he resists that attitude. He hates it. <coughs> so meekness and humility are what we need to fight. Verse 6, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time. Don't exalt yourself. Don't try to make yourself look better by putting others down. <coughs> Humble yourself and let God exalt you in due time. Casting all your care upon him, for he cares for you. And be sober, be, be serious, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil as a roaring lion walks about seeking whom he may devour. Whom resist steadfast in the faith knowing that the same afflictions are accomplished in your brethren that are in the world. You're not going through anything that no one else is going through. But the God of all grace, who has called us to his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after that you have suffered a while. We are going to suffer a while. And it's easy for us to say, well, it's been a while now. Let's get over the suffering and let's have some blessing. Well, we'd all love that, and it is coming. It will come. But how long we need to suffer, and how much we need to suffer, and how long it's going to take to humble us is another matter. God is going to keep the pressure on until we humble ourselves. He just will. So, if you want the suffering to stop, we've got to humble ourselves. So, after you have suffered a while will make you perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. Well, God will give us those things we seek, ultimately, if we, if we learn from our suffering. 
To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. And then he greets different ones. By Sylvanus, a faithful brother to you, as I suppose I have written briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God wherein you stand. The words that were written here are very, very much a part of the new covenant, the new agreement, and how we treat one another. You can't just not murder each other now. You can't hate each other. You can't treat a wife or a husband as chattel or cattle. You have to treat them as co-heirs together of the grace of life. The new covenant has changed a lot of things, and he covered a lot of that here. We have to have a fervent love for each other, and we have to have the same humility and meekness that Jesus Christ had. That is our goal and our purpose. The church that is at Babylon, elected together with you, salutes you. <clears throat> so does Marcus, my son. He must have been in Babylon when he wrote it. Greet you one another with a kiss of love. Peace be with you all that are in Christ Jesus. Amen. So there is what a man who lived, walked, talked, experienced with Jesus Christ had to say for us as we approach the Passover season, that we are to be like the Lamb of God. We are to accept his body, his blood, for remission of our sins, and we are to walk as he walked, act as he acted, and have the same attitudes he had. And he loved all of us very deeply in being willing to take on all our sins and to suffer and die for us. So as we approach now the Passover this coming Friday night, I think it would be well worth our time to think on these things that Peter had to impart to us about what Christ went through and what it means for us. Thank mm -hmm. you.